be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Noted journalist Scott Simon once said, There are times when the adoption process is exhausting and painful and makes you want to scream. But, I am told, so does childbirth. Now, you might wonder why I'm bringing up the issue of adoption on the basis of the text that we've just read. Uh, Adoption, we recognize, is a much-needed mercy uh, in the world. 
but it is also a theological doctrine of the Christian faith. And it is the subject of chapter 48 of Genesis. What we see here is Jacob adopting Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his own. That's what happens in verses 15 and 16. So we might wonder, well, why would Jacob adopt Joseph's sons? They are his grandsons, after all. What is the need to adopt them as sons? And what is this supposed to teach us? Well, we should remember that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. And so this record of Jacob adopting his grandsons, uh, claiming them as his own, elevating them to the status of sons, has something profitable in it for our instruction. And I believe there are important aspects here of the doctrine of adoption that are displayed in this example of Jacob adopting Ephraim and Manasseh. So let's review uh, what happens in this chapter. First of all, Jacob is nearing the end of his days. He is old. Uh, He has already made arrangements for his burial, as we saw at the end of chapter 47. His eyesight is now growing dim so that he cannot see clearly, and he is sick. So he sends a messenger who comes to Joseph and tells him that his father is ill and, and likely at the end of his life. And so Joseph takes his two sons and goes to visit his father. Jacob rallies himself on the bed to enjoy this final visit from his favored son. And then in verses 3 through 7, Jacob launches into this history lesson that seems somewhat out of place and odd at first glance. Why Why is he telling us these things? But they're important because they're setting up the basis for the blessing that he is going to bestow on Joseph's sons. In verse 3, he remembers that God had appeared to him and blessed him at Luz. Now, Luz is the location where God had appeared to him as he was leaving Canaan back in Genesis chapter 28 and again in chapter 35 after he had returned to the land. This is uh, the site uh, where Jacob saw the ladder connecting heaven and earth, and Jacob renamed Luz and called it Bethel, the house of Elohim, or the house of God. And the blessing that he received there was essentially the same both times that God appeared to him in this location. It was uh, the promises of God that had been made first to Abraham and then to Isaac and are now uh, passed on to Jacob. The promise of a multitude of descendants. And it's given in the language of the mandate that was first given to Adam in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. The promise of the land as the inheritance for his descendants, the promise of a blessing to the nations. And now Jacob reminds us of these promises in verse 4. In verse 5, he expresses his intention to adopt his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, as his sons. They will be to him like Reuben and Simeon, who are his first and second born sons. Then in verse 7, he tells us of Rachel, his wife, and her death. And the point of that is that Rachel, being his true wife, Joseph is her firstborn. 
And so he is giving to Joseph the, the double portion that would traditionally be given to the firstborn son. And, and Jacob makes this explicit in verse 22. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. He's given him a double portion. This double portion consists in having both of his sons named as heirs. They will each have a tribe named after them. Think about that. In the history of the nation of Israel, we don't hear much about the tribe of Joseph. Occasionally, we hear that mentioned, but most often it's the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. Joseph received this double portion. There's a reference here to a portion of the land that Jacob uh, promises to Joseph's descendants, and and it's likely a reference to Shechem, which will later be uh, given to Ephraim as part of his lot in the land. Jacob, with his fading eyesight, then confirms the identities of his grandsons and proceeds with the blessing. And so Joseph arranges the boys so that they can receive the blessing from their grandfather. He sets Manasseh, his firstborn, on his left side so that he would be on Jacob's right, and Ephraim, the younger, on his right side so he would be on Jacob's left. But then, with intent, we're told, Jacob crosses his hands puts his right hand on the younger son and his left hand on the older and proceeds with the blessing. And the language of verse 12 here could be a little confusing. It says that Joseph brought them out from beside his knee, or in the King James it says from between his knees. The word just means in close association with. But don't let this fool you into thinking that they were little children. They were likely kneeling beside their father when he brought them forward, they are actually probably somewhere around the age of 20 at this point. Genesis 41.50 tells us that these boys were born to Joseph before the famine began. They were born during that seven-year period of plenty. And Jacob, of course, didn't even come to Egypt until somewhere near the end of the second year of the famine. So they were two or three years old by the time Jacob came to Egypt. And in chapter 47, we were told that Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. This is near the end of his life, near his death. And so this makes the boys maybe 19, 20 years old, possibly even older. So they're young men, young men, kneeling before their grandfather to receive a blessing from him before his death. And Jacob intentionally gives the greater blessing to the younger brother. Now, this had happened, if you'll remember, with Jacob himself. He received the blessing from his father Isaac, and the narrative kind of recalls that to our minds. Isaac also had failing eyesight at the time that he gave the blessing to his sons. In that case, however, he was deceived into blessing the younger son. But here we see that Jacob did it knowingly and on purpose. Verse 14 says that as he laid his hands on the boys, it says that he guided his hands knowingly. And when Joseph objects to what he has done, Jacob insists. Verse 18 says, Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He intentionally blessed the younger brother. 
The similarities and the contrast between Jacob and Isaac blessing their sons are, are fascinating. Isaac and Jacob both have failing eyesight. Isaac knows the intention of God to bless the younger son, but stubbornly intends to bless the older instead. But then he is deceived into doing the will of God. Jacob knowingly blesses the younger son over the objection of Joseph because he believes it is the will of God to bless the younger son. Similar situations and conditions, but contrasting responses to the will of God. Jacob is obviously the example that we should desire to follow, doing the will of God in spite of the traditions of men, in spite of the desires of others. So that's what happens in the course of chapter 48. But then there's the question of what is this meant to teach us? Well, it's interesting that given the whole life of Jacob, as we have explored it throughout this study in Genesis, think about all the things, all the events that happen in Jacob's life, him receiving the birthright and the blessing, him traveling to his uncle Laban's house and, and laboring uh, for his wives, his having all of these sons in contrast to his father who only had the twins, his return to Canaan, wrestling with God and being renamed Israel, surely a very important event. It's interesting that the one episode in the life of Jacob that is singled out in the book of Hebrews as being the pivotal moment of faith in Jacob's life is this blessing of Joseph's sons. Hebrews chapter 11, known as the Hall of Faith, that points out significant acts of faith in the, among the lives of the people of God. It tells us of Abel making a more excellent offering than his brother Cain, of Enoch walking with God and being taken up into heaven, Noah building the ark, Abraham leaving his homeland in obedience, Sarah having a child in her old age, Abraham, again, in obedience, offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac, blessing his sons with faith for the future. And then, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. Of all Jacob's acts, this is the one that Hebrews calls attention to. And I, that's significant. And so I had to ask, well, why? What is so significant about this blessing on these two boys. Well, as I thought about it, I realized that the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh was their adoption as sons and heirs of Israel. The blessing contains a number of features, but the central one is their adoption. And let my name be named on them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. So I began to think about adoption and about the doctrine of adoption as we know it. Adoption is part of what we call the ordo salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. It refers to the, the sequence of events, at least logically, that occur when a person gets saved and becomes a Christian. First, there is the decree of election. God decrees those that he will elect to salvation, and then he calls them to salvation. And then the Spirit works regeneration, giving them new hearts. And then comes what we think of as conversion at that point, which really encompasses two doctrines, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of adoption. 
which is then followed, of course, by our sanctification over the course of our lives, perseverance in the faith, and finally, glorification. But justification and adoption happen more or less simultaneously, though justification logically comes first. But adoption is a very important doctrine, and it's not one that we often hear a lot about. Because I thought about it, and, and what the doctrine of adoption entails for us. And as I reread this chapter, I began to see the beauty of this account. It's a glorious picture of this wonderful doctrine of adoption, which is a vital part of our salvation. So let's take a look at the doctrine of adoption and then review this chapter and see how it demonstrates this doctrine for us. Now, when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, giving them a new heart, when this happens, they are enabled then to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ's finished work for salvation. At that moment of faith, they are justified. That is to say, they are declared righteous in God's sight. Their sin has been remitted, atoned for by the sacrifice of Christ. His righteousness has been given to them. The word we use is imputed. It means that his righteousness has been credited to their account as if it were their own righteousness. So it's not even as if in our justification our sins are wiped away and we become a blank slate. No, Christ's righteousness is given to us so that we have a a positive balance with God, as it were. And then they are adopted. So the sinner goes from standing before God guilty of sin to having those sins removed, Christ's righteousness credited to them, and then adopted as one of God's children. And there are a couple of New Testament passages that speak to this doctrine. In Galatians, we read this in chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So here we see that we must first be redeemed, before being adopted, and that being adopted means that we become sons, children of God. We have the privileges of sons, which is highlighted in Galatians for us, the privilege of addressing God as our Father. In Ephesians, we read in chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory and of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved." So our adoption was something we were predestined to before he ever created the world. And it is a vital part of our salvation. Our adoption by Jesus Christ, our adoption by God is in Jesus Christ or through Christ. As Dan Kruver puts it in his book, Reclaiming Adoption, he says, adoption is nothing less than the placement of sons in the Son. These two concepts Adoption unto the Father and being in Christ are so necessarily joined to one another as to be inseparable. 
In other words, it's our union with Christ by faith, which is pictured, of course, in our baptism, in which we participate and join him in his death, his burial, his resurrection to new life. This union with Christ is what makes our adoption as sons of God possible. The human race, by design and by creation, was created. We were children of God. Adam is called the child, the son of God. But sin separated us from God. We were alienated from the household of God, strangers to his grace, enemies even of God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Ephesians 2.13, by means of adoption, we have once again become the children of God, members of his household. Our justification means we are forgiven. Our adoption means we are loved. And there are many benefits to this doctrine of adoption, our, our being made children of God. And our confession actually has a chapter called Of Adoption. It's one paragraph long, but it is packed with the benefits of this doctrine of adoption. It says this, all those that are justified, all those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, having his name put on them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What a glorious doctrine. Notice that the text of the confession speaks of our union with Christ when it says that we partake of this grace of adoption in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. The preposition in means that our adoption is tied to our being in Christ, united to him as our covenant head, the head of the church, the mediator of the new covenant. And the phrase, for the sake of, is also used in chapter 11, the preceding chapter, speaking of our justification, thus reminding us that these doctrines are inseparably linked together. They are both justification and adoption, gifts of God's grace, provided to us by means of the work of Christ as our mediator, our high priest, and our atoning sacrifice. The confession makes a point of saying all those who are justified are also adopted. No one who is justified by faith in Christ is then left unloved by the Father. No, all those who trust in Christ are adopted by God as his own children and enjoy the love of the Heavenly Father. So we can rest assured that if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, we have been adopted by God the Father As his child, we have become a part of the household of God, and we enjoy the love of the Father. What struck me about this paragraph in our confession was that even though Genesis 48 is not listed in the footnotes as a proof text, so much of the description of the doctrine of adoption in that paragraph is demonstrated in Genesis 48. Consider the blessing that Jacob gives Joseph's sons in verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my father Abraham, my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, 
the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now, the angel here is a reference to Christ as the messenger of the Godhead or the one who wrestled with Jacob there at Bethel, the one who Jacob says redeemed him from all evil. As John Gill comments, this is not to be understood of a created angel that he wishes to be their guardian, but of an eternal one, the Son of God, the angel of God's presence, the messenger of the covenant, the same with the God of his father before mentioned as appears by the character he gives him, as having redeemed him from all evil, not only protected and preserved him from temporal evils and imminent dangers from Esau, Laban, and others, but had delivered him from the power, the guilt, and punishment of sin, the greatest of evils, and from the dominion and tyranny of Satan, the evil one, and from everlasting wrath, ruin, and damnation. In other words, Jacob rightly places justification before adoption, just as our confession does. Notice that the confession said that we are made partakers of the grace of adoption. Genesis 48, there is one thing that is clear. It is that the blessing of adoption that is received here by Ephraim and Manasseh is by grace alone. They they don't deserve to be adopted any more than any of Jacob's other grandchildren do. To demonstrate the point, it is the youngest who receives the greatest blessing. We've already seen that Jacob blessed Ephraim intentionally against the wishes of Joseph, against the traditions of men. And we've seen this pattern multiple times throughout Genesis. God is not constrained to operate according to our expectations or our traditions. In fact, he often operates outside those traditions and outside those expectations on purpose in order to show that his blessings are to be received by grace, not claimed by right. The blessing of the youngest son shows us that the blessing of adoption is by grace alone. The boys didn't deserve it any more than their cousins did, and Ephraim didn't have a right to it by tradition. It was by grace according to the sovereign will of God that Ephraim received this blessing. And so too, we must recognize that our adoption by God as his children is not because we deserve it more than others. It's not that we have some right to it. It is the grace of adoption because it is unmerited. We only receive the blessing of adoption because of the grace of God in Christ, not because of anything deserving in ourselves. It's a blessing. It's a privilege, not a right. So when we pray to the Almighty and call Him our Heavenly Father, that's not a right. It's a great privilege and a blessing that has been granted to us by grace in union with Christ Jesus, His beloved Son. Now, this just should inform our prayers. When we pray to God, our Heavenly Father, it should be marked by thankfulness and gratitude not by presumption or a flippant attitude. Next, we see that adoption, as demonstrated here in Genesis 48, means being counted among the children. The confession says that those who are adopted are taken into the number 
by which it means the number of the elect, the number of God's chosen people. No longer strangers and aliens, we become children, counted as his own. We see this in verse 5 of chapter 48. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. They're to be numbered among the sons of Jacob because he has adopted them as his own. This is a great privilege that all who have come to faith in Christ are made partakers of. We are numbered with the elect, with the children of the Most High. If you are united to Christ by faith, then you are no longer a child of wrath, as it says in Ephesians 2.3, but you are now a child of God. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Beloved, you are the children of God. You're counted among that number. You know what's amazing is that in in the book of Exodus, when the children of Israel are given instructions for how they are to partake of the Passover... They are to completely consume the Passover lamb. None is to be left over to the next day. And it explicitly tells them in Exodus chapter 12 that if if your family is small, then you are to join together with a neighboring family so that when you partake of the Passover lamb, it will feed the exact number of people who are gathered. No more, no less. No one was to go without a portion, but there was to be none wasted. So it is with Christ, our Passover lamb. The number of God's children is exact, and all of those who have been elect and have put their faith in Christ are numbered among that number. No one for whom Christ died is left without a portion in Christ. And there is an abundance of Christ, but it is according to the number of persons, as it says in Exodus 12.4. None who are counted among that number will go without. His sacrifice is sufficient for all, and none of Christ is wasted. All those who partake of Christ are counted among the number, just as Ephraim and Manasseh were to be counted among the number of the children of Israel. The confession also says that those thus adopted will enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Well, in chapter 49, Jacob blesses his other sons, but he doesn't bless his other grandsons. Ephraim and Manasseh are the only two grandsons who enjoy the privilege of sons to be direct partakers of the blessing and to have a tribe among the nation of Israel named after them. So too, those who are in Christ partake of the privileges of the Son, being united to Him and thus made sons ourselves. The first privilege the confession makes note of is that those who are adopted by God have His name put on them. Look what Jacob says concerning Joseph's name, Joseph's sons in verse 16. Let my name be named upon them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. He adopts them, and so they have his name put on them. Now look at this. In the book of Galatians, where Paul is writing to a Gentile church, 
and explaining to them their position as children of God. He says, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. In chapter 3, verse 7. And then in chapter 4, verse 28, he says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac were, are children of promise. And then at the end of the letter, he says, And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. How amazing is it that in the space of one book in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit would give to Gentile Christians the names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob making a point. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. As adopted children of God, we have been adopted into the family. We've been identified with the fathers of the faith. And in addition, we are quite literally given Christ's name. We're called Christians. And as James Renahan notes, baptism is the place where believers publicly declare their faith and are baptized in the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a sign of fellowship with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and of being engrafted into Him. And there he's quoting from the Confession, chapter 29. Then he continues, It is the obedient act of the new believer declaring Christ's lordship and receiving the blessing of being named with the people of God. And as we see in Revelation 22 at the end of the story, When the kingdom comes in all of its fullness, we are told that those who belong to Christ shall finally see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. This verse in Revelation 22 verse 4 indicates that in the kingdom our adoption will be final. We will bear his name fully, being remade into his image without sin and glorified together with Christ our head. Another aspect of the privilege of adoption that we see demonstrated here is set out in our confession when it says that they are protected. Having his name placed on us means that we are secure in him. He is our refuge and strength. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe, Proverbs 18.10. Now you might ask, well, where do we see this in Genesis 48? How are Ephraim and Manasseh protected by Jacob's adopting them? Well, as I thought about this, I began to ask why Jacob felt it necessary to adopt these two boys in the first place. As I said, they're they're his grandsons. Why does he need to adopt them? Well, first of all, as I said, he's giving uh, the, the double portion of the firstborn to Joseph by naming his two sons and adopting them as tribes of Israel. But there's another reason I think he adopted them. Consider this. These two boys were radically different than the rest of Jacob's grandsons. Radically different. Jacob may have foreseen that in the future there could be a question regarding their legitimacy as heirs. But think, we don't know where Joseph's other brothers got his wives. We, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. But we do know that Simeon, at least, had one son born of a Canaanite woman. And that is specifically pointed out in the text of Genesis 46.10. So th- there could be a bit of a stigma about that. They weren't supposed to intermarry with the Canaanites. Where did Joseph get his wife? Pharaoh gave Joseph his wife. 
She was an Egyptian, and not just any Egyptian. She was the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. She was the daughter of a high-ranking Egyptian priest in a false religion. Imagine, Ephraim and Manasseh had grown up in Egypt, speaking Egyptian. Joseph may have taught them Hebrew in the home, but Egyptian was surely their main language. They likely had darker skin than their cousins from Canaan. They had grown up in the city, in the home of a high-ranking government official, not on a farm like their cousins from Canaan. They had grown up knowing only one grandfather who happened to be the high priest of a false religion. I can imagine the rest of the family at some point might have been looking at them a little sideways and thinking, I don't know if they're really one of us. Jacob probably rightly discerned that there could potentially be a question about their right to claim an inheritance as children of Israel. They probably seemed more like children of Egypt to the rest of the family. By adopting them, Jacob was protecting them and their future offspring from the prejudice of the rest of the family and from their exclusion from the inheritance. And what's so amazing about that is how it pictures our adoption. Think about the attitude that the Jewish people had towards Gentiles. Think about how difficult it was even for the apostles to accept the fact that Gentiles would be accepted in Christ. Those prejudices ran deep. And that's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 saying, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were once Gentiles in the flesh, but now In Christ Jesus, you are no longer Gentiles. You bear his name. You've been adopted into the family. You are part of the commonwealth of Israel, no longer strangers to the covenant, but true children of the covenant, children of God. You are protected. Your salvation is secure, just as Jacob protected Ephraim and Manasseh by adopting them. The confession goes on to say that they are provided for. That is, that the adopted children of God are provided for by their heavenly Father. Jacob made a note of saying that God had provided for him. In verse 15, the God who fed me all my life long to this day. And Jacob now provides for his two adopted sons. As we saw earlier in verse 22, he explicitly provided a portion of the land of Canaan to Joseph's sons saying, Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. He made sure they would not be left out, but that they would have a portion in the inheritance. And so it is with us. God has promised to provide for our greatest needs, salvation, but also to provide an abundance Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Our Father in heaven cares for us and freely gives us all things in Christ. 
And this is a privilege accorded because of our adoption. In Revelation 21, verse 7, we are told, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. The blessing of provision is tied to sonship, which is a result of our being adopted in Christ Jesus. The confession then notes that those who are adopted shall be sealed to the day of redemption. In this same chapter, when Jacob adopts Joseph's sons, protects and provides for them, he passes on to them the promise of redemption from Egypt. In verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. By their adoption, Ephraim and Manasseh were sealed for this day of redemption along with the rest of the children of Israel. In the book of Ephesians, we find this, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then a few chapters later, we are admonished, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit of God dwelling in the children of God is the seal and guarantee of our redemption. And the exodus from Egypt is often set as an example of our redemption from the bondage of sin. And so in Romans we read, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is why that the only other place adoption is mentioned in our confession is in chapter 18, where it speaks of our assurance of salvation. And there it says that we have this assurance on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. And finally, note that the confession says that our adoption is the ground for our inheritance. They inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. By their adoption, Joseph's sons became heirs of the promises made to Jacob. And this is why he blesses them with the formula and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This is the substance of the promise that God would make Jacob's descendants to be fruitful and multiply, thus fulfilling the original mandate given to Adam, restated to Noah, and then promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph's sons adopted as sons of Israel became heirs of that promise. The tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh became the most numerous of the tribes of Israel. And so... We, as adopted sons of Christ, become heirs of this promise as well. That passage in Romans that I just read continues and says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. As Paul says in Galatians, we have become the children of promise by our union with Christ, the promised seed. Our inheritance is secure in heaven, awaiting the return of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom, and the glorification of his church. 
the blessing of adoption is given according to the will of God, not the expectations of men. It is given to those who cannot claim it as a right, but then who inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. We're born in sin as heirs of death and hell. Our justification erases that, putting away our sin and crediting Christ's righteousness to us. The grace of adoption then makes us heirs of heaven. And the grace of sanctification makes us fit for heaven. The adoption of Joseph's sons by Jacob aptly demonstrates the grace of adoption for the elect. As Matthew Newcomen, one of the Westminster authors, said this regarding the paragraph concerning adoption in the confession, he said, so here all is of grace, the inheritance of grace, our right and title to it is of grace, our fitting and preparing for it is of grace, all of grace, nothing of merit, all of God, nothing of ourselves. Adoption is a blessing that we receive by grace that means that we shall spend eternity with God, who is now our heavenly Father. Let's pray.